0: Hello and welcome to Speak A Dogcast. My name is David Farb, Animal Behavior Specialist, recording from WOUF Studios in wonderful Palm City, Florida. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I am so happy to be here. Hope you are too. And on today's episode, we've got some great segments for you. First off, we're going to talk about creating your dog, all about how to create your dog, We're also going to be talking about training tools, the wide variety of them, maybe some that are good, some maybe not so good. And our guest spot today is going to be fantastic. We have Dr. Jackie Lyle from the Stewart Sound Animal Hospital, so I'm very excited for that as well. We also have our Breed of the Week, of course, and our Q&A. Now, if you like what you hear, be sure you tell everyone you know, of course, and click that subscribe button. You can visit our website as well, www.speakadogcast.com. Find us on Instagram and Facebook, and enjoy today's podcast. Our next segment today on Speak, a dogcast it's all about the crate and crate training. So is the crate good or bad? Well, the answer really is it depends upon how you condition it. Now, I'm going to give an example, but before I do, here's my disclaimer. I have never done this, nor will I ever do this, and this isn't something in real life I am going to do. This is just for, exam- for an example's sake. Let's say I have a dog toy and I hide it behind my back. And then I bring out the dog toy and show it to a dog, but when I do, I simultaneously hit an air horn. It's probably gonna scare the dog a lot, right? Okay. Now, if I hide it behind my back again, bring it out again, hit the air horn again, it's gonna scare the dog again. So by the third or fourth time, I probably would not even need the air horn. All I'd have to do is show him that dog toy and he'd run for the hills. Now, again, I would never do this in real life, but the point is I've conditioned that dog toy to be a form of punishment, to be an aversive. Now, I highly recommend going and listening to one of my other podcast segments, Dog Psychology 101, where we talk a little more in depth about reinforcement punishment and what it means. Now, aversive, the word aversive, you might hear me say that. It's a fancy word for punishment. And, uh, well, a quick definition I can give you for punishment is anything an animal works to avoid. Now, me hitting that air horn and conditioning and pairing that stimulus with the dog toy was a form of punishment to the dog because the dog ran away. worked to avoid it, right? So it's a form of punishment. So the point is I can condition anything, even something a dog, like a dog toy, something that dog is supposed to desire and like, I can condition it as a form of punishment. Now I wouldn't want to do that and it's the same way with the crate. I don't want to condition the crate as a form of punishment. Some people do, and some people do it unknowingly. Um, but I don't want to condition the, the the crate. I don't want to associate and condition punishment with the crate. I prefer to condition reinforcement and desired things with the crate. So it really goes back to just how you condition that stimulus, that the crate, um, what stimuluses you pair with it, desired or undesired, reinforcement or punishment, That's what's going to determine whether your dog views it as a great thing or a bad thing. So I personally use the crate as a place that they desire. And I think the crate is not only a really good tool for dog training, but a necessary tool. Crates can be used to help with things like or eliminate altogether separation anxiety, housebreaking. Uh, There's also the fact that down the road, if your dog ever needs surgery and you need to keep him off his feet, the crate is a great way uh, to put a boundary in place safely. And introducing your dog to the crate early and and helping them understand that it's a desired happy place, well, that can really contribute to making that an easy transition for something like that down the road. So the easiest way to get started when you crate train is, of course, if a dog is a puppy. It's a lot easier to tackle any behavior when a dog is younger versus being older. However, you can condition an older dog to accept a crate. I've crate trained all my dogs from my puppies through older dogs that I've adopted later in their lives. So it's possible to introduce the crate really at any age. Then we wanna start by making the crate a comfortable, safe space. And we can do that by maybe putting dog beds or some blankets. Maybe good to have a blanket that you've used so it has your scent on it. It's always good to have familiar scents and make them feel more comfortable. So nice soft bedding is good. And even some dog toys are okay. I will say be mindful about what toys you put in there. You know, you should know your dog's chewing habits. You should know your dog if he's a chewer and he eats toys because obviously we don't want to leave them um, you know, unsupervised with toys that could be dangerous to them. So just be mindful about what toys you're putting in there. Make smart decisions on that. Now to get our dogs into the crate, we're going to use a leash. You want to take that leash, leash them up, obviously, <laughs> guide the dog into the crate. Now We can also use something called reinforcement sampling. I don't think that's something we've talked about yet. Reinforcement sampling, you've probably used it and haven't even realized it. Uh, You know, I take a treat and what do I do? I throw it in the crate in front of the dog. The dog sees it and goes, yeah, all right, I'm going to go in and eat that. Here is the sample of the reinforcement you get by walking into the crate. Reinforcement sampling. Now, it sort of sounds like a bribe in a way, and okay, maybe it is sort of, but not really. Uh, It can become a bribe if I rely on it. And what I mean by that is if you never shape the behavior away from that treat going in before the dog goes in, then the dog's going to rely on that. Because the one day you don't put the treat in there, what happens? Dog's going to walk up to the crate and go, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going in there, you didn't put the treat in. (laughs) Right? So we have to understand how to shape that as well. So I'm going to let you in on my little secret on what I do here. Now, when I'm first training, yes, I use reinforcement sampling. I toss the treat in, the dog goes in and gets the treat. But the second thing I do is once he's in there and he's eaten that initial treat, I give him another treat in the crate. That way he understands there's more coming and it's not just that initial first treat. So next time around, I'll do the same thing, a little bit of reinforcement sampling, then a little reinforcement afterward for going in the crate. And before you know it, the dog's going to be running in there before I can even toss a treat in the crate. And then I can shape it away by removing that first treat very easily. And even if they don't go in there, use your leash, guide them in, and only give the second treat. Before you know it, you can shape it away. You know, that's kind of how training starts, is you have to to start with a little bit and then shape the behaviors into what you need it to be, right? So I take little baby steps like that. Now, once I get them in there and I'm praising it and I'm rewarding it and they're, they're doing great, they're going in happily, I don't want to shut the door immediately and lock them in. I want to, again, take baby steps. So let them go in and out on their own accord. Keep reinforcing it a couple times. Let them feel comfortable with it first. Then once you see that happening, sure, we'll shut the door the first time, give them another treat and walk away. Now, I might go do laundry or go do some dishes or just walk around the house a little bit but ignore them. That way, if I need to guide and direct any whining or any other behavior like that, I can. I don't wanna just shut the door and leave the house immediately the first time, right? Baby steps. So then once we guide him through that, we'll do overnight, he can spend overnight in the crate. I have no problem with the crate being in the bedroom, as a matter of fact, that's what I recommend. I think you should do everything as a pack. When I have dogs in my rehabilitation programs and things, I have all the dogs, all of us, my own pack, we sleep in the bedroom together. But at first, they're going to sleep in a crate. I look at it as they're going to give me some separation, but they're still able to sleep with the pack and bringing them some comfort. Sort of a little gimme on both ends there. And it also can create, again, some healthy separation so we don't form any separation anxiety issues. So there's nothing wrong with setting up that crate in the bedroom. And again, I think it'll be easier to be able to guide and direct the behaviors if necessary overnight. Now the first few nights, if it's a little rocky, a little bumpy, don't be surprised. We might need to guide and direct their behavior. It's not a problem. But before you know it, again, we can shape that into sleeping overnight without a problem. Now, leaving the house the first time, I recommend doing a short trip, maybe a little 20, 30-minute trip to the grocery store the first time. And you can even set up a webcam. Keep an eye on them while you're gone and know what they're doing. That way you can adjust training as necessary and make a bigger difference faster in the crate training. So in no time, your dog should be going in and out of the crate on their own accord. You should be having plenty of opportunities to reinforce and strengthen that behavior, and you'll have a no, no problem crating your dog. Now, a couple notes I want to make. I don't really recommend leaving food and water in the crate while you're gone. There really isn't a reason that a dog should need a water bowl in their crate. You should be waking up early enough to get your dog out for a walk, feeding time, give them plenty of time to drink, urinate, and do everything they need to do to get enough water in their system. Unless you're gone for an extraordinary amount of time, they really don't need any water in their crates. And that especially goes with puppies. Puppies will fill their bladder so full, and I mean so full, that it's like a balloon that's about to explode. And they will urinate and lay in it even though they don't want to. It's more a matter of bladder control at that point than anything. So it's a good idea to be able to control their intake and output by not leaving water in the crate. It's not a good idea. And the same thing with food. I might do a segment later on about food and separation anxiety and how they can relate. So I don't recommend leaving a bowl of food in the crate when you're not there. So if you follow these quick tips and rules, you'll have your dog crating like a champ in no time. Are you tired of your dog barking all the time? Or maybe you want them to stop jumping on people when they come over. Or does your dog take you for a walk instead of the other way around? We can help. At The Nature of Training, we are committed to improving the relationships and lives people have with their pets. No matter what behavioral issue you are experiencing, from an unruly puppy to more severe issues, we can help. Offering a wide variety of services such as in-home training, doggy and puppy boot camps, doggy day camps, boarding, and more. You can find more information by checking out our website at www.thenatureoftraining.com or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at David Paws. We're located in beautiful Palm City, Florida, serving all of the Treasure Coast in North Palm Beach County. The Nature of Training, helping you achieve success with your pet. Our next segment on Speed. Dogcast. it's all about training tools Now, training tools come in a wide variety and really can be a little bit overwhelming so I'm going to narrow it down as to what training tools I think are necessary what tools may be unnecessary and maybe some tools that you don't even think about as being training tools and we'll also talk a little bit about how to utilize them correctly now, when it comes to training animals I like to take a natural approach by understanding their instinct and how the animal learns. Now, I've been lucky enough that I've trained with uh, and worked with a wide variety of animal species from dogs and cats through all different kinds of birds, birds of prey, macaws, crows, cockatoos, I've worked with pigs and raccoons, otters, primates, and done a little bit of big cat work as well. And in getting to work with so, so many different types of animals, it allowed me to better understand the science and the psychology that goes behind it. And I've discovered over the years, you know, every animal on this planet, every single one, every animal learns the same way. It doesn't matter if it's a person, a dog, a cat, a monkey, we all learn the same way. The only thing that changes animal to animal, species to species, and individual to individual is motivation. And being able to manipulate and control that motivation is what training is and what training is all about. And I have to have different tools to be able to do that. So I sort of look at training as it's its like building a house, right? It's going to take a lot of different tools to get that house built, and the first thing we've got to do when building a house is lay a nice, consistent, and solid foundation. doesn't matter what kind of animal I'm working with, we have to have a good foundation to work with. Once we have that foundation, we're going to put a brick on, then another brick on, piece by piece, layer by layer, until we slowly but surely get a nice, solid house built. So it's important to understand that we have to have the right tool for the right job. Now, if, if you're a construction worker actually building a house in real life and you need a hammer for a job, but you're trying to use a screwdriver, you're, you're probably not going to get the best results. So you have to know what tool to use for what job. And that's really important. And a lot of times when I first meet a client, I discover they aren't using the correct tool. They're not using the right tool for the right job. And of course they're not getting the result they're looking for. So, the first thing they got to understand is, well, what is this tool and why am I using it? You know, most people don't ask that question. It's a gimmick that got them to buy this thing or, hey, maybe it looked like it made life easier. So that's why I bought this tool or, (laughs) and they really don't understand what that tool is designed to accomplish, right? So it's important to understand again, what tool you're using, what you're trying to accomplish with that tool. And is that tool going to do do that. (laughs) Right? So again, when I start working with an animal, we want to tap into that instinctual psychology side. And in doing so, we need to keep it really simplistic. Most animals actually have very simple and basic processing capabilities. Okay we're talking about dogs right now so that's definitely true but let's not get into we're not going to talk about you know greater apes or elephants or or dog or any of those animals with the much higher intellect and much higher processing capability self-awareness uh, we're not going to get into that debate today but we're going to keep it simple today and talk about dogs and dogs are very basic in the way they think so I have to take my training down to their level in the way they think and the way that they naturally understand and perceive the world around them so then I have to take tools that they understand and can in, uh, instinctually and naturally get and be able to utilize those tools. So what kind of tools are we talking about? Let's get on it. All right. We're talking about harnesses. We're talking about collars, leashes. That, well, there's all different kinds of collars, right? There's there's nylon collars. There's choke collars. There's scent collars. There's shock collars, pinch collars, martingale collars. We have other tools such as crates, treat pouches, treats, dog beds, toys, tennis balls, All these different things are actually training tools and how we utilize them, or maybe we don't want to utilize some of them, is very important. So let's start with the basics, leashes and collars. My go-to collar is called a martingale collar. Now I recommend going back and listening to my podcast on walking your dog and how to walk your dog, I talk a little more in depth about the martingale collar. But suffice it to say, I like the martingale collar for two reasons. One, when applied correctly... It will communicate with the dog in a natural way that they'll understand, and two, they cannot back out of the collar. They can't escape out of it when it is adjusted correctly for size. Now, I always want to give the disclaimer when we're working with any kind of collar that does constrict, we never, ever, ever want to pull and hold. We never, ever, ever want to yank as hard as we can. We don't want to do that. There is technique to using these collars, and one of the worst things you can do is pull and hold. One of the worst things you can do is let your dog bolt and choke themselves on the collar. You don't want to do that. Um, So it's important that you understand how to use that collar. And I highly recommend getting with a professional uh, to be able to understand that better. But the Martingale collar is my go-to collar. My, My Chihuahua wears a Martingale collar all the way up through my half lab, half Great Dane Penny. She wears a Martingale collar. It is my favorite collar. Again, I want to approach things from a natural way, and these collars allow me to mimic a natural nip in the way dogs will correct each other. Now, the leash that's going to go with that, I prefer to use a very simple six-foot nylon leash, keeping it really basic and really simple. Now, there are the other tools out there, such as gentle leaders, harnesses, regular nylon collars... And quite frankly, they do not provide the same level of control and guidance that can be offered from the martingale. So let's go through each one of those. Let's talk about the gentle leader first. Now, it's not to say I can't condition the gentle leader to be a successful tool for working with my dog. What I will say is in my experience, when I have walked into a house where somebody is already using a gentle leader... Um, you know, the consultation, I always do consults with clients first. We start with a consult so I can kind of see what's going on, give them a better assessment. And we, I like to go for a walk. And so I'll have them use whatever tools that they normally use so I can see how the walk normally goes for them. And the clients who put the gentle leader on their dogs, I, you know, I, again, this is just in my experience more often than not, and maybe it was the way the, the, the gentle leader was conditioned, but nonetheless, if I see it more than 50% of the time, there's a Very consistent pattern going on there and it makes you go, "Mm, maybe this isn't the right tool for the job. Anyway, when they go to put the collar on the dog, or excuse me, the the gentle leader, the dog almost shuts down. (laughs) I can't tell you how many times I've seen it where the dog is like all happy and fine and then they bring out the gentle leader and all of a sudden its tail tucks down between its legs, its ears go back and down and you just see its whole body language just kind of diminish And again, I don't know if it was how it was conditioned. I wasn't there when they first started using the gentle leader. But personally, when I see that, that's not the tool I want to use. Now, again, could be the way the tool is conditioned. But when I see that consistent of a pattern, no, I'm going to look at that and go, that's not the right tool for the job. Again, the other problem with it for me is it just doesn't provide that same level of guidance for their focus that a martingale collar can Now, regular nylon collars is what we'll talk about next. I don't like the regular nylon collars. They have their use. They do have a specific use. Um, I don't mind the nylon collars being worn around the house to just put tags on, right? Um, The Martingale collar is a constricting collar. Any kind of constricting collar does have potential to get caught up on something and, and pull. So if a dog is left unattended with one of those collars on, yes, there is potential for pot maybe, yeah, maybe once in a blue moon, something could go wrong. But 1% of the time is enough to make me go, all right, why don't we put a nylon collar on the dog and we'll put the tags on that and make him wear that when we're not on the walk. So to me, that's what a nylon collar is more for, identification. It's not meant to be used as a training tool. Um, now, with good proper technique, you can get decent results using a nylon collar, but uh <laughs> What's the point of that? I don't want to have to be very finesse about it and make sure, you know, you're not going to get that same result uh, as using a constricting collar or, or a martingale collar. So I don't really like the nylon collars with the exception of them being used more as an identification. Harnesses. Oh, where do we start with harnesses? <laughs> Look, harnesses were designed for one reason. One reason only. It's to get a dog to pull. That's the whole purpose of a harness, Right. You obviously don't want to get a dog to pull when they're wearing a collar because they could choke themselves, so there's the safety part of it. But then there's the more instinctual side. That tension, when you put a harness around a dog's chest like that, the tension and the, and the restraint they feel like uh, against them makes them want to pull. Now, dogs are predators at the end of the day, and any time a predator feels resistance, their instinct is to push back against it. So that's why that harness is going to work so darn well to get a dog to pull. Is that to say you can't teach a dog to walk properly on a harness? Well, no, but are there better tools for the job? Absolutely. It's called a Martingale collar. I think I've said that before. I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, I don't like the harness as a training tool. I like the harness if I need a dog to pull. Look, if I'm living in Alaska and I need to take my sled dogs down to go to the grocery store, you bet. I'm going to teach them to to wear a harness and they're going to pull me down in that sled. Sure. If I want to go for a bike ride and I want my dog to pull me, which again, I don't necessarily recommend unless you have proper training because that could be data. But then I may put a harness on. But I don't use harnesses. I don't. I can accomplish... Everything I need to, with the exception of getting a dog to pull me safely uh, with a martingale collar, stay away from harnesses. I, I can't stress it enough. They they're they're a gimmick, and I know people will fight me and go, "Well, my dog walks great, and all." Well, good for you. You're you're one percent. <laughs> you're not the average owner. Then that's not the average dog. I'm sorry. It's not the right tool for the job. You know, my motto really when training animals is K I S S. Keep it simple, stupid. You don't want to overcomplicate it. Most animals, as we talked about, are very basic in their thinking and their instinct. It's it's very just instinctual mostly. And so by overcomplicating it, you're actually going beyond their means to understand it. So it's all about keeping it simple. K-I-S-S. Keep it simple, stupid. There's no reason for all these gimmick collars and the gimmick this and that. No. It's a basic thing. You know, the Martingale collar is really just a fancy slip collar. That's really what it is. It's a fancy, uh, excuse me, slip leash. It's a fancy slip leash. Uh, and we've been using slip leashes as human beings for thousands of years on livestock, on dogs. Um, and there's a reason we use the slip leash for so long. And it's for the simple fact that it works. That's why. Martingale collar is a slightly more advanced version of it. And that's why I use it. Because it works. So let's talk a little more about some other tools. Maybe let's get into the retractable leash. Please do not buy a retractable leash. If you have a retractable leash and a harness, you need to go to the pet store right now and go get a martingale collar and a six foot nylon leash. I'm going to tell you a little story about a runaway, uh, excuse me, retractable leash. They're also called runaway leashes. They're in multiple names, but the retractable ones, the ones that go out 20 feet and then you can, you know, push the button and it retracts back in. So here's the story. I had a guy who called me about his German Shepherd who was aggressive toward other dogs. A little bit of a dangerous situation, if you ask me. Um, You know, I assessed the dog. I gave my honest assessment. We did two sessions. We really didn't get anywhere. Oddly enough, he was a lawyer. And you would think (laughs) a lawyer of all people would understand the liability and the danger that goes into having a dog like this and not wanting to train or fix its behavior or manage its behavior better. So he used to walk this German shepherd on this thin little runaway leash that could go 20, 30 feet out in front of him. Now we walked in the same area. He lived in a neighborhood around the corner from me. And there was this one corner that you would take and it had this big 10 foot wall. And when you, you could not see around the corner of this wall until you were literally around the corner. And what would he do? He would walk his dog 20 feet, 30 feet out in front of him. So this dog would turn the corner before he would. He couldn't see even what's going on over there, let alone be able to control it. And his dog almost bit one of my dogs two different times. I mean, within a couple feet. And the only reason they didn't is because I have good control over my dogs, good reaction time, and I'm paying attention to what's going on on the walk at all times. Retractable leashes have their purpose. Just like a lot of these tools. If I'm if I'm working a bomb-sniffing dog, and I need that dog to have some freedom to be able to, to go on this, you know, to get on a scent and track it, but I don't want to forfeit total control, guess what? Runaway leash, retractable leash, perfect tool for the job. Now I'm pretty sure most owners are not sniffing out bombs in their free time with their dogs. You do not need a retractable leash. People go, well, I want to give my dog freedom on the walk. Go back and listen to my podcast about walks. That's not what the walk is for. The walk is not playground time. And not to mention, the walk is not your time to do whatever the hell you feel like it. Excuse my language. But there are other people out there walking their dogs. And when you have a 30 foot radius around yourself at all times, because you have no control over your dog, that's very selfish and dangerous. You only need a six-foot leash to walk your dog properly. Please don't buy retractable leashes. They're dangerous, and they have a purpose, and I can guarantee you, you don't have the purpose for that leash. So I don't want to get too much off on choke and prong collars today. I think I might do a whole segment on that in the future. Um, Suffice it to say, no, I don't really use prong collars. I'm not the biggest fan of them. Choke collars have their purpose. Uh, but to me, it is not the go-to collar for most people. They're not as forgiving. They require more technique and finesse. And I find the Martingale collar to be the better collar. Now, it's not to say I never use choke collars because like I said, they do have their purpose. Uh, but I think we're going to save that for another day as well as the shock collars as well. Now, I will say I never, ever, ever, ever use shock collars. I won't use a shock collar and I'm not going to use a shock collar. It's not going to happen. Uh, There are better tools for the job. And again, I think I'm going to do a segment on this at another time. Let's talk about treats, food, and treat pouches for a moment here. Now, I only have three ways to motivate an animal. Food, affection, and sex drive. I can't do anything with sex drive. leaves me food and affection. If I give all my food and affection away for free, I have zero ways to motivate an animal. More importantly, if I don't have food on me and I need to be able to reinforce a behavior, well, I just forfeited a chance to strengthen a behavior that I liked, right? So that's a problem. So you need to have your treats and your treat pouch on you at all times. Um, You know, a tool isn't gonna do you any good unless you have it to be able to utilize it. So it's important that when you go out for a walk, when you're working with your dog, when you're training, you always, always, always have treats or a treat pouch nearby in handy. Um, You don't wanna miss out on an opportunity to strengthen behavior. Now other things like a dog bed, believe it or not, a dog bed can be a training tool. A lot of times we'll teach something called a place. And most people know what a place is. You say, hey, go place. And the dog goes and lays down in a specific spot. Well, I can use a dog bed as a reference point for that. Uh, When I teach greetings at the front door, when I teach my dogs to sit and stay, and so I can allow friends to come on the front door, I utilize the dog bed. I'll utilize it as a mark, put them there and reward that so they understand uh, what they're supposed to do. So the dog bed's being used as a training tool. Other things like a tennis ball or a toy, if you have, let's say, a retriever breed, retrievers are, are, as we all know, what do they want to do? They want to retrieve. I can use retrieval in a tennis ball as a form of positive reinforcement just as I can with a treat. It goes more under the affection side uh, of reward, but nonetheless, it's a training tool. So it's important that you understand it's not just treats and collars and leashes. It can be a wide variety of things um, that can be used as training tools. Hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. Don't forget to click that subscribe button and check out our website, www.speakadogcast.com. Next up on our guest spot today on Speak a Dogcast, it's Dr. Jackie Lyle. Now She is a veterinarian at the Stewart Sound Animal Hospital, and she's been with the practice for about a year and a half originally from Kentucky, earning her bachelor's degree from Western Kentucky University, and she went to school at Auburn University uh, for vet school. I would like to welcome Dr. Jackie Lyle to the show. How are you today?
1: Good. I'm good. How are you?
0: Doing great. Doing great. Now, I've, uh, I've known Jackie for a couple months now, and we're both actually members of the Young Professionals of Martin County Networking Group, and we met a few times and got to chatting, and of course, we both work with animals, so let's have her on the show. Now, last that last week, actually, I guess that was two weeks ago. Um, I went to the CPR and pet first aid class that your uh, vet put on. So, why don't we just start there? Tell me a little bit about how that went.
1: Yeah, so um, we kind of just wanted to do a little community outreach event. Um, It was open to clients, of course, but also to you know different people in the in the community to just sort of meet us and then also learn, you know, a little bit about um, not only CPR, but, you know, a lot of emergency events that that clients can come into contact with and and should be prepared for, um, you know, as as far as what to do and how to get your pet the best um, safety and you know, treatment as quickly as possible. So I think it went really good. We ended with a cute little dance um <laughs> to the the CPR song. What is it? What is that? Staying alive. Stayin alive. Yeah. So um it was super fun and uh, glad that we got to see a bunch of our clients again and uh just kind of reach out to the environment and uh you know talk to some some other new people as well. Um but
0: it was good. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really great. There was a lot of uh, awesome information, and I, I, I thought it really was an excellent event. Uh, it was cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we got to talking more, and, um, you know, what? Uh, why did you become a veterinarian uh, to begin with?
1: Um, I feel like people ask me this all the <laughs> time, and they, like, want this big, cool story or something, but I really don't have a, a profound, um, like, event that happened. I think that as a young child, I was just always kind of drawn to animals. Um, I guess a good example is, like, I remember as a kid going to my grandparents' house for Christmas, and, like, all the kids, you know, being so excited to play together, and all I wanted to do was sit on the floor with the dogs and, like, hang out with them the whole time, so I don't know if that made me a super weird, like, child, but it grew into me just having a really strong connection with animals, and um, I guess I just, sort of didn't really see myself working in any sort of other environment other than, you know, with, with animals and specifically dogs. Um, and it's just sort of where I ended up and, um, I love every day of what I do. So I, I guess it worked out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Definitely. No, I, I, Hey, I can relate to that. You know, it wasn't like this, uh, profound thing that stuck out of my childhood. Like, Hey, I have to go work. I mean, I figured it out yeah. like 23, but exactly like you said, there's, a, there's kind of, I would say a lot of these little animal stories that add up in my head that I just yeah. are, are such vivid memories. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so there was that connection with animals that you had and, yeah. you know, I, I, definitely relate to that, but it's not like, oh, you know, I was going to go be a vet or a zoologist or anything yeah. like that. so yeah.
1: I think that, you know, also I, the, the dog that I had growing up, um you know, Yellow Lab, the most loyal dog anyone could ever have. And she was just became a very, very big part of me growing up and, and getting through a lot of things, um, you know, hardships and just, you know, silly things you have to deal with as a kid. And I think after I realized how important she was to me, I was like, you know, that's, that's what the dog is in people's families now. You know, they're a family member and I just want to do everything I can to kind of, you um, you know, help that, help that relationship and, and family bond and, you know, make sure that other families get to experience what I did as a kid too. So. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So while we're on the subject of uh, talking about your dog, why don't you tell us about your dog Wally?
1: Oh, Wally. <laughs> um, so his, his license would say Walter because that's his, um, government issued name. Um, but he is, um, a three-year-old, um, I don't know, like rat terrier mutt that I got from the humane society in vet school. Um, I adopted him my last year of vet school and, um, he is, a little bit of a troublemaker. He should probably go to one of your boot camps. Um, (laughs) But he's very cute and adorable. And I love him to death. Um, He's at the clinic. He comes to work with me like every day now. So um, he gets to hang out in the little doctor's office that we have. Um, But yeah, he's a little bit of a troublemaker. He's eaten Dr. Pike's uh, breakfast a couple times. Uh And... (laughs) So yeah, he, yeah, but it's right. he's doing good. He's great. Everything's good.
0: Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so why don't you tell, uh, tell us some more about, you know, the, the animal hospital, tell us more about Stewart Sound Animal Hospital and the staff and what you guys yeah. do.
1: So, um, let's see here. Dr. Steers is the owner. Um, so it's obviously a, a small animal, um, family community practice, uh, privately owned by Dr. Steers. Um, and he started it way back in 1997, which we were obviously at, we were at a different location at that time. Mm -hmm. And then, um, he built this new location that we're at now back in 2013. Um, and just sort of the practice kept growing, growing. And, um, he added on Dr. Rowley and then also Dr. Pike. Um, and so I am the fourth vet, um, so for doctor practice, um, open every day, including Saturday. Um, and um, I don't know, what else do you need to know? Small animal <laughs> practice. We we, you know, pretty much general small animal um things like preventative medicine, you know, sure. we do vaccines, uh, spay neuter, we can do a lot of other surgeries as well. Um, specifically Dr. Rally is really good at a lot of sort of more um um. Uh, uh, specific surgeries that some general practitioners can't do, um, and then of course we offer things like dentistry, and we have the dental radiographs and all of that good stuff that you want for for your dental cleanings. Um, we also do a little bit of alternative medicine. i was curious to hear um, more about that. Yeah, so that's Dr. Raleigh. She, um, and I'm also interested, I did a, in vet school, I did a little preceptor with um, someone who only did alternative medicine. So we certainly dabble in that a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. including um, acupuncture. She also is certified in Chinese herbs. Um, so it's a very good way to kind of supplement, you know, um, on top of our, you know, sort of traditional therapies and treatments sure. um, for all kinds of different diseases. Um, we also do, you know, ultrasounds and, and different things like that. Um, laser therapy is a good, sort. that's also sort of alternative therapies so mm-hmm. on top of that. Um, and then we also do like boarding and, and all kinds of stuff like that. So um, we, we offer a lot of things and can certainly, um, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, great.
0: No, that's great. That so, you know, with everything COVID and all that, um, how, are you, how are you? How have you been dealing? Are you guys back to normal? Are you sort of somewhere in between right now?
1: Yeah. So first of all, COVID is crazy um, for everyone, (laughs) and I know that for sure. But um, we, and specifically, and I think this is true for for most veterinary practices, um, you know, in the U.S. right now, but we have been absolutely crazy busy lately, um, which is really, really good, Um, but, you know, certainly having to adjust a lot with our new sort of practices and trying to keep everyone as healthy and safe you know as possible um but no I think that we've done a great job um, as far as keeping everyone you know safe and and um communicating with our clients and making sure that everyone feels comfortable with what's going on um we were doing the curbside model for a really long time We just recently kind of started opening up our doors more and letting people in, you know, as long as they feel comfortable and, and we're all kind of wearing masks and and trying to keep up with the CDC guidelines and all that stuff. So it's been a crazy road and I wish that it would just kind of go away, but I don't think it's going to. Yeah. So yeah, but Hmm. it's, it's okay. We'll, you know, one step at a time, I guess.
0: Yeah. Hey, who knows? Maybe maybe, uh, maybe next month, all of a sudden, this thing disappears, right? Oh, maybe. We'll see what happens. I don't know. Uh, like hey, a, a, this is a dog podcast. We'll stick to that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, really, I can't even, you know, I can't imagine uh, having to deal with <laughs> everybody and, and all the madness that goes with it. And, you know, it's funny as I'm expecting, I'm expecting the phone calls as soon as everybody really fully goes back to work, my phone's going to ring off the hook because I'm going to have separation anxiety cases, you know, (laughs) coming left and right. Everybody's been home with their dogs, right? Um, And that's why you guys are probably seeing the calls right now because everybody's actually home and probably just, you know, a little, paying a little bit more attention to their pets and just interacting, touching them more, feeling and realizing, you know, you might find something that's cause for concern and. I think
1: it's a lot of it is that they're watching their pets more often and maybe noticing things that they wouldn't have noticed before. And I think another part is that a lot more people are working from home Mm -hmm. and they don't get to go out as much and go to restaurants and they want somewhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I'll get my dog's vaccines updated. Exactly. I, I
0: I had a great time with your office at your event. So, I mean, I get it. You guys seem like a lot. A of fun so it's no, great we are very fun
1: <laughs> no it's yeah. good it's a good thing so yeah. i'm not i'm certainly not mad about being extra busy um sure. and good, i love seeing problem. clients i've loved you know having people come back in i really missed being able to talk to my clients in person and oh, yeah. you know seeing what they've been up to and and all of that good stuff so i'm glad it's somewhat getting back to normal
0: definitely definitely yeah, and you know i've been going back into homes again and couple months now, honestly, started with the masks on. And I mean, most most of what I do is outside anyway. Um, So it's a lot of it's social distances itself, I guess, by what I do. Um, But yeah, yeah, no, that's crazy. But yeah, Yeah. you know, your vet office seems great. And I, I loved I was poking around the website the other day. And I, I, I was very pleasantly surprised because, you know, most vet offices, it, it, obviously it's got the bios and tells you about the services and you guys yeah. have a whole slew of amazing information. I was, I, it was awesome. They have all this great info about dog anatomy and cat anatomy and you can actually click and learn about yeah. the circulatory system. And I mean, it's awesome. It's so cool. And then they have breed information on all these different breeds and. Um it really is just a treasure trove of good yes. info f- of, of for pets. So, you know, you uh, what what is the website again?
1: Um it's stuartsound.com, I think. Is I think it's that. Oh, I put you on um, the spot.
0: I think,
1: it's, yeah, I think it really is stuartsound.com. Um Yeah, that's it. There I we
0: go. Right. stuartsound.com. All right, good. I should probably
1: remember. You that.
0: should probably know that, but that's all right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so it's Um honestly, I didn't know we had that much information about the circulatory system but and, and I maybe, will tell maybe I exaggerated
0: I like, on the circular but I mean it was there was a lot there there really was it was a lot about the anatomy and it was yeah. interactive and the fact that you could click it it really cool. Yeah. Um, again, yeah. most you know most bed offices like I said it's basic info so that's it's awesome. Good I think stuff. a
1: big part of what we do it here is really trying to help communicate with clients and, and educate and them educate, on yeah. sort of what's going on with their pets. And, I, you know, that's sort of a, a big reason of why we did that community outreach event. Um, but, I, you know, at the same time, every time I diagnose a pet with anything, um, especially, you know, if we take x-rays of, you know, the abdomen or something and, and you find something, I bring those x-rays in the exam room and I show them, you know, I show the clients, this is what your dog's dealing with. This is what it looks like. This is, you know, how we treat it. And I think it really, it really helps um, not only the at-home care that they need to do, but it helps them understand what's going on and and helps, you know, that, that bond between them and their dog and, and knowing how they can help. And and I think that's a big part of that medicine. So, we try to communicate and, and educate our clients as much as possible.
0: It's awesome.
1: Yeah,
0: it's very awesome. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I try to I try to branch out and network with as many vets in the area as I possibly can, and I I'm definitely been forming great relationships with a few. And you know, I say to everybody out there listening, um, and I mean this in a complimentary way to them to you guys, and and um, shop around for your vets. <laughs> know who's yeah. caring for your animal. That's very very important. Um, obviously, Doctor Steers went to the University of Florida, so he's amazing. We you know done. Uh, but really, no no, it's important to know where they got their education, in my opinion. Um, especially with medical care, it's very very important. So you know, make sure you're doing your research, and 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 you you find the right vet. That's a good fit for you and your animal and obviously stored sound sounds like it'd be a good fit for just about anybody which is awesome well
1: um, thank you yeah, Certainly
0: yeah. a compliment. So, yeah so one more i'm just curious one more question i had for you yeah. you know and this is for anybody listening as well that has pets yeah. what's the most common medical issue that you think owners could actually you know easily prevent that you see often it comes in and you just go gosh if only they had done this or simple something simple maybe
1: okay yeah So we, we kind of touched on this at the CPR event, but certainly for those people that weren't there, um, I think probably being in South Florida, the most common thing that comes in that is so, you know, preventable and and things like that would be a heat stroke, which is very, 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 um, it, it can be fatal. So, um, the most important thing to prevent a heat stroke is, is really to know, um, you know, be, be concerned about your dog constantly panting, um, making sure that there is shade and um, a fan nearby, certainly making sure there's always access to plenty of water um, and, you know, not l- making them go outside for long periods of time um, and different things like that. I know that every time I bring Wally to the beach, he is like looking for any sort of shade that is nearby because <laughs> he gets hot within like 10 minutes. Um, so certainly if you're gonna bring your dog to the beach or outside or, or somewhere, making sure there's somewhere for them to go and cool off and have access to water. Um, because as soon as that temperature rises, um, it, can, it can start to have really bad damage to the internal organs. It can have neurologic effects and all kinds of bad stuff. So, um, that would be the most common thing I think that we see. Hmm. Um, and then I also just thought of something else that I feel like my friends text me about all the time. Um, you know, dogs seem to be in pain and so what do they want to do? They automatically want to give them something that they have in their medicine cabinet. Um, whether it be Tylenol or Advil or something like that, which is a human medication. And those types of medications, if they are not prescribed by your veterinarian can cause very bad damage, um, specifically GI ulcerations. Um, mm-hmm. So damage to the, to the GI tract, um, it can also cause bleeding abnormalities and all kinds of really bad stuff. So I would just say, Um, To all pet owners out there before giving your dog anything, especially over the counter or anything in your medicine cabinet, kind of, if you can consult with a veterinarian, um, preferably not Dr. Google, um, (laughs) that would be great because you never know what, um, you know, what damage it can do to your dog.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. A lot of good information there. So, Dr. Lyle, thank you so Mm -hmm. much for being on here today. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great
0: time. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll have to have you back uh, in a later segment, maybe even talk about some more specific medical stuff and uh, get some interesting conversations going. I think that'd be awesome. That
1: that sounds like a plan to me. Great.
0: All right. Well, thank you again. All
1: right.
0: Thanks. In these crazy times we are living in right now, there is only one thing for certain. You got to eat. And if you gotta eat, you better eat good. I know when I'm cooking and eating at home, I want to use only the highest quality ingredients. So I turned to my friend Ken Ko over at Southern Pride Gourmet Foods. You can check him out too at southernpridegourmetfoods.com. Now they have barbecue sauces, spice rubs, hot sauces, and jellies just to name a few. They also have some of the most delectable beef jerky you will ever taste, and I am a beef jerky fanatic. And don't get me started on just how good those candy jalapenos are, but you better buy them when he has them, because he always sells out. That is how good they are. They also have the most authentic and pure olive oils, only made with the good stuff. Now, most olive oils that you get at the grocery store, they're mislabeled and misleading. They're a mixture of different oils. They're not the pure, good olive oil that Ken gets. Now, when you buy from Southern Gourmet Foods, you know you are getting a quality product from a quality guy. Ken knows what he's talking about, and he better. He's been doing it right and doing it right for over 50 years. And the best part? Southern Pride delivers nationwide. That's right, nationwide delivery. So do yourself a favor and make your way over to southernpridegourmetfoods.com. That's right, southernpridegourmetfoods.com, where everything they have is yummy for the tummy. Next up on Speak the Dogcast, it's our Breed of the Week. This week's Breed of the Week is the Labrador Retriever. Now, labs are medium to large sporting dogs. They are very hardy and sturdy and also have a very strong body. Now, labs are fun and very happy dogs that are great for families. But with that, they bring high energy and a need for a lot of exercise and stimulation. They need a job and they need to work and work hard. Daily walks are an absolute must and consistent training from a young age. Labs that are left to their own devices, well, we all know they can become destructive and anxious, and of course those are undesired behaviors we want to avoid. Because of this high drive, though, labs are often used in scent work, guide dogs, search and rescue, hunting, and of course they make great companion dogs. The average life expectancy for a Labrador Retriever is 10 to 12 years, And unfortunately, they do have a few health issues such as hip dysplasia, arthritis, cancers, and mast cell tumors. Now, the breed owes its origins to the Newfoundland. Starting around the 1500s, the Newfoundland was beginning to be crossed with smaller water dogs. And those dogs became known as the St. John's dog. These dogs excelled at jumping into icy waters and retrieving fish that had fallen off hooks. And they'd also actually pull in the fishing nets for the fishermen as well. In the early 1800s, the Earl of Malmesbury had seen the breed in action and was so impressed with them that he brought the dogs back to England with him. Now, Both the Earl and the Duke of Malmesbury began using the dogs and referred to them as the Labrador dogs. The name stuck. The labs were then developed and refined, crossed up potentially with some flat coat retrievers, among other dogs, and this is how they came to be, the breed that we recognize and love today. Next up on Speak a Dogcast, it's our Q and A segment. Now, hopefully, in time, this will evolve into a listener Q and A, but for now, I've prepared some of the most common questions I get about dogs, and I'm going to answer them. First question: What kind of treat should I be using for training my dog? Short answer: A soft, chewy treat. Crunchy treats can create a mess and create distraction, so you want to use a soft, chewy treat. I prefer a brand called Pet Botanics. They make an excellent treat. It's very small, easy to use, and comes in a few different flavors. Next question: Are there hypoallergenic dogs? Short answer: No, no, there are not. The misconception is that people think there is such thing as a dog that doesn't shed or doesn't give off dander. And really, what it is is dogs. Some dogs have fur, some dogs have hair. Majority of dogs have fur, and people are usually allergic to fur dander. If people were allergic to hair dander, they'd walk around sneezing all the time, just being around people. So what designer breeds and designer breeders have done is breed a dog with fur and a dog with hair in order to cut down on the amount of fur dander, and most people with dog allergies are more tolerable to that. Is it hypoallergenic? No. No, it's not. Next question. Just how good is a dog's nose? Short answer? Well, the average human has around 5 million receptor cells in our nose to take in scent. A dog, on the other hand, has around 220 million. So you can imagine just how much better their sense of smell is. <music> wrap up the podcast today thank you so much for listening in and of course a special thank you to dr jackie lyle for joining us on the guest spot today from the stewart sound animal hospital if you guys like what you hear don't forget to tell everybody you know click that subscribe button and if you have any questions for the q a you can email us at questions at speak in the meantime have a wonderful week and don't forget to get out and walk your dog